Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the enterprise editor at the Times. Today's topic, finding new story forms. When Lane and I began working on narratives back in the late 90s, some of our colleagues were not fans. It was too different for traditionalists who were fond of the inverted pyramid and didn't imagine that anyone had the time or inclination to read. They did not want stories to unfold. We pressed on and well, we're still doing our thing and people do in fact like to read. In today's episode, we wanted to talk about taking risks, about ignoring naysayers and trusting your instincts, about not being constrained by traditional thinking, about letting the story dictate form. We've both been involved in a lot of alt story forms because well, they're fun and they can be really memorable. And when you think about your work, ask yourself, how many of your stories have been memorable? I'm still surprised at journalists who are reluctant to try anything different for fear of being criticized. Always better to be bold than boring. So let's talk about some of the fun things we've done in the hopes that it'll offer some inspiration. We're gonna start with poetry. <laughs> and Lane is gonna explain why she wrote a poem after an oil spill. Well, I'm, I'm not really a poet, um, but I'm a big fan of Dr. Seuss. And so I wasn't trying to be like all you know, New Yorker poetry, but I, we were covering the uh, BP oil spill 10 years ago. And there were every day there was another story in the newspaper about how they were gonna clean this stuff up, like what kind of sponges they were gonna bring in and pantyhose stuffed with seaweed and just all these crazy like fixes. And so I kept thinking about that children's story, The Cat in the Hat Comes Back, which is the sequel actually. And he brings all these little cat in the hats that live under his hat. And each one of the little cats is trying to clean up the spill, but making it even worse. And so I kept thinking about like, what if the cat had a BP hat on? And uh, so I wrote this poem called The Cat in the BP Hat Comes Back. It sort of mirrored the tale of the Dr. Seuss story in terms of like, somebody makes a big giant mess and a bunch of people have to clean it up. Um, and we had a wonderful illustrator at the Times named Don Morris, who did a whole page um, of Dr. Seuss illustrations around the poem. Um, and I should also say that it ran in perspective which is kind of a great home for places that you think like maybe won't fit in the traditional news pages or you don't have a feature section anymore. Perspective was totally happy to have a piece like this that would like break up their, you know, very serious stories otherwise. Um, so this is the ending of the, of the poem. Someday, years from now, that big splotch will be gone. Our memories will fade, time will march on. And so when you need sweet crude again, the oil cats will be happy to come back with their friends. With boats and blocks, pipes and plates, they'll really start drilling whenever you folks in Florida are willing. I guess it is a little opinion piece there. <laughs> and I had the little Lorax thing at the end going on. I actually, um, I, 
you know, like Lane, I, I had a reporter who wanted to to do a poem and they had they wanted to do something really simple, go to a, a baseball game and look for a kid who was going to snag a, a foul ball and kind of do it, you know, like Casey at the bat. And um, it was like, why not, you know, give it a shot and then and see if we can not make it sound hokey. And and um, anyway, it was like um, he, he did a really good job. He spent all game waiting for the best foul ball situation and then came back and told it. And, um, you know, people reacted to it. They just it was so unusual. And, you know, another time I I walked in, this is when I was in Norfolk back in the day, but it was the most beautiful spring day. And I looked up and the clouds looked just ridiculously puffy and like, like a kind of cloudy day that you don't, just a beautiful cloudy day that you don't see very often. And I turned to one of the reporters and I said, you know, you should go outside and write about the clouds because I thought I'm not the only person I'm sure that stopped to take in what a cool day it was. And, and she came back and wrote just a short little something about how the, how remarkable a day it was. And, and um, I'll never forget the copy editor that day said, poetry pisses me off. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's like, but again, readers reacted, you know, and then you get, you get um, people who actually wrote a letter to the editor or to thanking you for, for taking note of something like that, you know? Um, I just think it's, uh, why not? I mean, that's sort of, to me, the rule of thumb. Um, so we want to- All of us are writers. I mean, I feel sometimes we forget. I don't, I don't write poetry anymore, but I, I used to back in the day. You know what I mean? It's kind of fun to exercise those muscles again, too. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it felt, if it felt like it worked for you and it felt like a natural thing to do, then why not try to do it that way? I, I think- the traditional journalism form is kind of boring at times. I mean, we sort of embrace the boring in the way that we approach things instead of like trying to try to jazz it up a little bit, try to make people a little more intrigued. Um, so we've taken some of these things and we've turned them into categories of stories. So one, another one we, we, uh, we have here is like all or most, mostly dialogue stories. And we had talked on a previous podcast about one of the ones Lane did called House on the Corner. But kind of talk a little bit about why why you were inspired in that case to put it in their words and not yours. Yeah, my idea originally for that was to do it like a play because I had so much dialogue. We had and it was one of the first stories that um, I don't usually record interviews, you know, but the photographer had recorded everything. So she had all of the dialogue transcribed. Um, and the more I went through it, the more I thought they tell the story in their own colloquial language so well and it's so intimate. Um, I wanted to do it kind of like a play and I was, we kind of bounced it around the newsroom a bit and people thought maybe that would be demeaning or, or um, hard to understand. So we kind of took it apart and I wrote stage directions, you know, in italics at the beginning of a couple sections to fill people in, but the rest of it is just quotes. I just, you know, strung together quotes. Um, it was a pretty long story too. It, it, you know, it sustained itself um, I don't know, what do you think that was 100 inches at least, maybe more? Um, and, but the quotes were so good and so telling, my job was just to whittle out the good ones, you know? We had done, uh, I had a reporter named Teresa Annis who had done a story like, a, a dialogue story as well. And she covered the arts and her, she came back inspired to do something in dialogue when she sat at a dinner party with a bunch of artists who were talking about art. 
and they she had just put the tape recorder on and there was something about the scene that just intrigued her that it was almost like you know if it had been a movie and you had just watched these characters sort of share a dinner it was kind of more interesting than having it stop and start with her kind of you know trying to give somebody a, a little bit of time and then move on to the other one instead of just letting them go back and forth naturally so um you know did it work perfectly i don't know that it did but i but it was it was intriguing it was interesting and i think i think for sure on yours the house in the corner it it definitely gave you a sense of place and and made you feel it, it, it felt better coming like it was their story, not so much like you're jumping in to tell their story, but they're giving you're giving them a chance to tell their story. So it was exactly. kind of empowering that way, I think. Yeah, they, a lot of stories I think we feel as reporters that we need to put a lot of context in. And maybe it's only a line of italics every once in a while and let the people go, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, another one we sort of put under the category of TikTok, and um, I, 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 Lane and I couldn't remember, I don't think we've really talked about this story that much, if we did at all, that we did earlier this year called March Madness. And what Lane did with Leonora Lapeter Anton was um, really just focus on the month of March. So if you recall, which feels like, you know, a couple decades ago now, but March you know, we went from here in Florida, we went from the first cases being announced to kind of shutting down, the world shutting down. And um, they took different people and kind of placed them in time and sort of walked you through the month of March and um, kind of weaving in and out of what was like sort of the 3000 foot view and then coming back down to Florida. And um, I mean, what, do you, what, do you, what did you think you liked best about that story, just the way I mean, it was different, certainly. Yeah, I mean, we were thinking that like, you know, everybody's going through the same thing, you know, from the guy at the convenience mart selling beer to the, the actor who can't put his play on. And so how can we encapsulate all of these different viewpoints and all of these differing um, demographics, but, but show that everybody's going, everybody's in it together. You know what I mean? So we, I think we had a dozen different people and we tried to figure out, you know, different walks of life and different demographics, but um, it was just little snapshots. You know, I think it went really quickly. If we, if we try to do it as a reported regular news story overview, it would have been, first of all, duh, like we knew it already, you know? So I think it, it helped just to show people, it was like showing rather than telling people in these moments, you know? And I may be really interesting to go back and, and catch up with them again at this near point, you know, because I think some of them have really overcome and they're doing great. And some of them are really having a hard time. You know, um. it was really effective, I think, to go into the really um, tight moments, the this particular day when somebody unraveled or this 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 morning when they woke up to the news of something. And it just just contrast that to sort of the, this is happening to the whole world. But but having these people sort of walk you through it and then the month kind of help propel you forward. Right. So um um, and another one we did this year here at the Times, um, which again was just sort of using a different technique to do it. But um, Claire McNeil uh, went in search um, in the in the kind of in the aftermath of the the protests going and um, thinking about you know the black experience in America. She went looking for a family that would share their story with us, and not their story of um, you know. A, a bad run-in with the police or something like that, but just their story of what it is to, to 
to live every day and to experience the kinds of things that you experience when you're a black family that other families may not go through. And the way that she ended up telling that story was through the husband and wife sort of recounting their lives and, and stopping at different moments where they each had experiences that, um, you know, even they would check with each other to kind of see, okay, this is bad, right? <laughs> and um, um, it was really very, very effective, I think, to once again, like let, you know, kind of give control of the story over to the people who are living it. Um, did Claire know she was going to do that format when she started out? Or did that no. kind of evolve in the reporting? It, it, it really didn't. We, we kind of thought, you know, we get a family that's going to cooperate and we'll just talk to them. And, but it became so obvious that some of these moments are so, um, they're just going to hang with them the rest of their lives. And they're, and they're uh, really telling. I mean, <laughs> the showing is very telling, right? And so it just felt like, in talking about how to structure that story, it felt like we had to get out of the way of it, you know, and just let let them let them talk and and go through these moments. And so, really, it was more of an exercise in editing down each of these stories to try to make it, you know, keep it moving. Well, and that that was a pretty long story too. And I remember thinking, if I had opened the page and seen a double truck all of type without any place to break it up, I don't know that I would have gotten to the end. But right. the way it was formatted and broken up by dates and events like that, it made it real easy to dive in, and, and you wanted to keep going, you know. Right, right. And you're kind of living their life with them, so you're you're going along, you know. Um, so we talked about another category. Let's move. Um, was something we called snapshots of a sort. And um, another thing from this year was uh, a story that Claire had done on um, lonely people. But the, the reason this came up was that she was actually just trolling along Craigslist um, as you should do from time to time because Craigslist can be an interesting place to go find stories. But she was just seeing how people were trying to connect with other people in the time of this pandemic. and what we ended up doing was just a collection of some of those messages that were being put out into the world and, um, and just strung them together. Like, you know, this is where we are as, as, as a human race, this is what it's come to. And some of these people are just heartbreakingly sad and, and alone. And this is how they're reaching out. So it, it didn't try to do anything deeper than that. It just tried to collect all of this and sort of give it to you as a, as a, as a kind of snapshot in case you weren't place you weren't in that place, but you know, you could see how people were living and um, it was very different. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure some people kind of read it and maybe scratched their heads, but, um, but I think it was very effective as well. So. Well, and it goes back to the same thing with the March Madness one. It's like, we're the first draft of history, right? As newspaper yeah. reporters, we are the first draft of history. And it's important to remember when these things are new and we haven't had time to put it in perspective, what it looks like at that moment. You know what I mean? That story and the March Madness one might seem really silly now, you know, nine months later, um, but it was the new, trying to get used to the new normal. And I think that little snapshot was. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Exactly what we should be doing. You know, we used to have a, um, a feature when we had a daily feature section. We would have a feature called Word for Word. And it was just basically that, like just taking things that came off Craigslist or came off Facebook or came off of a lawsuit or came off of a police report, you know, and letting the words themselves be the little story. Um, and I think that's an interesting alt idea for anybody to try, you know. We got uh, kind of a variation on the same theme under the same category too. I, I'm going to talk about something called the things they carried um, that uh, when I was in Houston, we did a certain way. And then Lane's going to talk about a way she did it here in Florida. But in Houston, what we did was that it, Houston is this um, city full of refugees from people all over the world. So we were taking a look at this foreign-born population in a series of stories. And one of the stories we chose to do was to uh, focus on 14 people from different countries and ask each of them what was one thing that they brought with them when they immigrated to the United States. So as you might imagine, it was very compelling, um, you know, what they held on to, what they chose to bring. And um, if you had tried to do a story about the immigrant experience and, you know, what that's like and um, how torturing, tortured it can be, um, it just wouldn't have had the impact that it did to have each of these people, you know, explaining to you. And they weren't always obvious items, you know, it wasn't just a picture or something. So um, anyway, it, it was a much more effective way to look at that and to bring it home. And Lane did the similar thing with the homeless, right? Yeah, I don't know. Did, were you guys thinking of the Tim O'Brien book, The Things They Carried, when you came up with that idea? Well, sort of, but I mean, it was kind of like, we were actually thinking from a visual perspective, it was a little bit inspired by photographers who thought about, you know, um, you see, you, you, it's just an experience of living in Houston is that you're always running into people from other parts of the world. And it's a pretty amazing experience. And, and so from their perspective, it was like, it was an opportunity to take these nice portraits. And um, so we kind of, yeah, it, but yeah, that, that was partly the inspiration. Yeah, if you all haven't read that, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, it's one of the best books ever. And it basically does this with young uh, Vietnam War era soldiers and what they can put in their rucksack. You know, so all you have in the world is a rucksack and you're out, you know, chasing through rice paddies. What do you carry with you? Um, and so I was thinking about that when they had us um, years ago in, in Tampa at St. Petersburg, especially, they started um, running all the homeless people out. So a bunch of homeless people were sleeping in tents in a park and the police came through and like slashed their tents with knives and they all were sent scattering with only their grocery cart full of stuff, you know, or a backpack of stuff or a duffel bag of stuff. And so I went with the photographer as well and said, let's just talk about when all you can carry has to fit in your grocery cart or your backpack, what do you carry with you? You know, we, we found almost everybody had a library card, almost everyone had pictures of their kids. Some people had Bibles, some people's Bibles were their radios because they like to listen to music and that was their only like companion, you know, but really interesting thing, a ruler one guy had he needed, you know, it was just really interesting stuff that told you something about who these people were and what their lives had been because here's what they were bringing with them when they didn't have anything, any place to put anything, you know. Another category we talked, we talked, we've, we've given the category header overheard. So Lane, you want to talk about one that you did? Yeah, this, this didn't even set out to be a story. You know, this was something I'd been reporting another story and I saw this and I came back 
and told my editor just as an interesting thing I had witnessed. And he said, oh, we'll write that down. And I said, well, I didn't take any notes. I, I didn't ask anybody's names. I don't have ages. I know nothing about these people. He's like, well, write what you saw. Um, so this is just a really small moment uh, that stuck with me. When the gates parted at 9 a.m., hundreds of families flooded through. Some children ran, pulling their parents toward the rides. Others made their way on crutches and walkers. Many were in wheelchairs. A quick downpour left everyone soaked. Beside me, a family of four scrambled for shelter. I don't know their names. I didn't take notes, didn't ask questions. The mom tended her toddler. The dad was pushing the older son in a worn wheelchair. They stopped at the first ride beneath the tent, the Tilt-A-Whirl. Dad scooped up his son, leaving the wheelchair in the rain. The boy looked about 12 or 13. When his dad hoisted him across his shoulder, his sneakers dangled almost to the ground. His body was limp, his face blank. The dad eased him into the cart, climbed in beside him, pulled back the safety bar. The ride raced around an angled circular track. While Kid Rock sang his anthem of endless summer, the boy slumped silently against his dad. When the ride stopped, so had the rain. The dad lifted his son and leaned him against the mom. He said something, then went to grab the wheelchair. It was drenched. What to do? Dad turned and sank into the wheelchair. He wriggled around, leaned against the backrest. The water soaked his plaid shirt. The puddle on his seat wicked into his jeans. Then he stood, cradled his boy, and lowered him into the chair. Why did that stick with you? I can imagine why, but why did it stick with you so much? Well, I was I was reporting the girl in the window actually, and she had got like a, a follow up, and she had gone to this fair for kids with disabilities, and um, I was standing there watching this unfold and wondering like what was the dad going to do because everything was drenched, and so it, it just was such a, a parenting moment, you know, like what you wouldn't sacrifice for your kids, you know, and this dad was willing to have wet jeans the whole rest of the day, wet butt, so his little boy didn't have to, you know, and I I just thought. That was such a sweet moment. And, and Mike Wilson, my editor, then was like, you, I don't care what their names are. I don't care how old they are. You know, just sometimes it's just things you see that stick with you that I think as writers, we can just pop into a little piece. I hadn't, until Lane shared that with me, I hadn't read that. I did, didn't realize she'd done that story, but it was, um, yeah, it's it certainly, it, it, it's heart tugging, even though you don't know who these people are. Um, sometimes I like that too, because then they could be every man. You yeah. know, sometimes I like not naming the person right away or, or not placing them somewhere so you can, readers can think, oh, what if that was me, you know? Um, one we did uh, during Hurricane Irma, which was now like three years ago, but um, one of our reporters here, Lisa Gartner, had come back and said, you know, I'm, everywhere I go, um, I hear people saying the same things as they're getting ready for the store. And, you know, she's in the grocery store at Walmart or at the gas station. And this sort of the rhythm of it all was very similar. And the same conversations are playing out and everyone freaking out. And she was intrigued by the idea of just stringing together a lot of these quotes that were overheard and, and just kind of capturing the moment and the mood. And it worked really, really well. And it had, again, like these are anonymous people, but it was sort of like, just this is this is capturing what's happening. So a lot of the times to me, it's just like looking around and like embracing what's going on and not feeling so constrained by, again, you know, our traditional way of looking at things. Um, Lane had another category. So you called you called these one word group projects. Yeah, these, this wasn't my idea, but Mike Wilson would, would send us out back again when we had a, a daily feature section, you know, and he would every once in a while do like a team building exercise where everybody on the staff, 
not on the staff, on our team, like so five or six reporters and a photographer usually would like go out and everybody gets to find a, something that shows, one of them was escape, I remember. And, and I think I wrote about my dog digging out of the yard. The photographer took this amazing picture of her parakeet on her toes in a bubble bath because that was her escape. She would take a bubble bath and the parakeet would come. So she did like a first person one. Um, another time he, he, we were complaining that there was nothing happening. It was this like hot August day and nothing was going on. And he was like, oh, something's going on everywhere you look, just go find it. You know, so the idea was like, no news is happening today. Go find something for somebody that is happening that becomes a very big day. So someone went into a funeral and someone else went to, um, a kid's first baseball game and I went to the pound where a dog was adopted and got a new lease on life you know it's my dog themes coming through here I hear this but <laughs> they were all real little snippets you know like 300 400 words um but pasted together on a page it made a really nice mosaic um of an old idea to tell some story that makes me think of Ken Fuson's great story about a you know a summer day in Iowa where he um he just went looking around and pulled together a very quick story about sort of the scene. Um, if you haven't read it, I'm sure it's out there. You can look it up on the internet, but it's a great story. Um, okay, moving to a couple other categories here. We, we talked about the really offbeat. So I had a reporter years ago whose uh, daughter was very into Barbie and my scene Barbie was just coming out and he he thought it would be fascinating to write about this Barbie, but also include all lots of Barbie history and in this footnoted fashion, which um, you could basically, you'd end up, you could read this story horizontally or vertically. <laughs> this is how crazy it was. This is how much we, fun we had with this story. And then, you know, you'd get essentially to the same footnote down at the bottom, no matter which way you read it. And the type got smaller and smaller. Um, and it was just like an experience of like, how badly do you really want to read about Barbie? But, um, but it was cool. And I mean, even now, you know, you think I, um, it's like, why not, right? So it was great experimentation. Um, here at the Times did this crazy Lego project. You want to talk about the Lego project? Yeah, that was one of the most innovative things I've seen done. And it was a bunch of young reporters who were really good with data and uh, visualization. And then an older reporter who put it all together. Um, the, the bridge, the main bridge between Tampa and St. Petersburg has needed to be replaced for years and years. And they spent all this money on all these plans about how they would redo this bridge. And so they told the story by like stop action anime with Legos and they built a, a bridge and cars and little mayors and city council people out of Legos and they each each screen it was online obviously but each screen when you scrolled through there would be like two headlines worth of type and then the rest was just the Legos showing like how messed up the, the pedestrian lanes were and why didn't they put in you know high commuting lane and it was really well done it was really people loved it like I think a lot of people who never would have cared about reading a story about the bridge gone wrong really dug that story. All right, in the last category, I've let Lane take over here with other stories that were inspired by other, other, other forms, other, uh, uh, you know, children's books, songs. Um, Want to talk about some of those? Yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to find a new way to tell stories. And a lot of the, the ideas are not original. They just kind of come from other things I consume. Um, so I, when my kids were little and I was very into the rhythm of how children's books unfolded, I wrote a story, a Father's Day story about a man who owned a dairy and he passed it on to his son and he passed it on to his son. And it was like, Farmer Brown has two cows, you know, Farmer Brown's son had nine cows, you know, and it, it just kind of told in that voice, um, but it was told the story of this, this family dairy farm. 
Um, I did another one right after I came here. I was missing my best friend, Elizabeth Teal, who worked with us in Virginia. And she and I had had road trips together every spring since we were in college. We'd gone on spring break together. And now we had little kids. We had like toddlers. And we were planning this spring break road trip with the toddlers. And I thought of this song called This Is Us um, by Mark Knopfler and Emmy Lou Harris. If you haven't heard it, this is going to get a little bit meta, but it's a great song where this couple is like looking through their life through a photo album. And each photo is a memory. And they go, this is us in your wedding gown. This is us when your kid was born. This is us when we planted this tree. You know, and so I did the story with Elizabeth's spring break. Like here's a snapshot of each spring break as we graduated from college and got married and got jobs and had babies and still wanted to fit into that tie-dye bikini, you know? And so it was it was definitely little, each each year or six of years was a, a, a snapshot there. Um, I did another one with my friend Karen Baird, who'd been collecting quarters. Remember when the quarters had states on them and you'd all try to find one from each 50 states? And she was talking about how much her life had changed since she started collecting these quarters. I think it was over the course of about 10 years. Um, she'd gotten married, she'd gotten divorced, she got a motorcycle, she got hurt, she got a job. And then so each quarter represented something of a progression in her life. And people love that story because I think they all were like, oh, I remember when I found Linda Bada quarter. You know, and so there was a lot of touchstones on it. Even though it was a memoir, it was kind of written like a memoir. Um, it was hinged on the quarters and when different state quarters came out. Um, and then we did another one here that I wasn't involved in, but again, the same team of people that did the Lego project worked on one after the um, Pride, um, the Pulse, I'm sorry, the Pulse nightclub shooting. Mm -hmm. And there was all this um, reporting about how the guy had gone from the stage to the room to the bathroom and back out again. And all these people were hiding in different places in the nightclub. And so one of our, our data visualization journalists made it like a first person shooting game and you could actually like navigate your way through the nightclub and say okay when you get to the bathroom this girl hid out in the bathroom under the toilet then you go to the stage this guy was behind the stage cowering you know and you can move around it was like so you it felt like you were right there in the nightclub when this stuff was happening and they did it like a tick-tocky timeline of how it unfolded but it was so powerful to see it that way and put yourself in that nightclub you know all right, so we'll we'll try to connect. We'll try to link to as many of these stories that we've mentioned as possible. Some of them might be too dated, but um, hope it offers you guys some inspiration. Uh, if you have a question for Lane or want to suggest a podcast topic, find us on our Facebook group or email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's w-r-i-t-e-l-a-n-e at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Ayana Ishmael. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.